0: You're listening to a sermon from Tyler Christian Fellowship in Tyler, Texas. Find us on the web at tcftyler.com or send us an email tcftyler at gmail.com. Thank you, Lord. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're glad that you've joined us to, uh, to worship the Lord. And uh, you may not be familiar with us, but uh, your heavenly father knows you and he knows how to speak to you. So sometimes it's in uh, unfamiliar places that we can hear in a way that we haven't been able to before. So I just encourage you to open your heart up to him because I know he wants to speak to you. He wants to speak to all of us. He's always looking for people whose ear is inclined toward him and whose heart is open to him. And uh, he is uh, ready, willing, and enthusiastically uh, able Uh, to minister to you, to strengthen you, and to draw you to him today. So you just let him do that. Um, Are the kids going to children's ministry? Then we're going to let the kids go? Anybody else notice that it's been too long since you knelt for any length of time? <laughs> it's, a, it's a wake-up call. Not that I haven't been praying, but I haven't been praying, praying in that position for a while. So, uh... <clears throat> And I do think there is something to that. I think there's something to the posture that we have before the Lord. Part of it is physical discomfort, um, but... The big part of it is humbling ourselves before God, putting ourselves in a position where we are subservient and we are on our knees because we don't do that enough. Um, so that's a that's a real good reminder this morning. Um, I got a lot to share today, and uh, we've kind of been saving it up as we've been working through the Book of Nehemiah. Um, and do we have a PowerPoint? Um, as we've been working through uh, the book of Nehemiah, we're going to talk about a couple of characters, characters, uh, today that first appeared in chapter two of, uh, Nehemiah and, uh, they are Sanballat and Tobiah, um, and a little bit of, uh, background, um, Sanballat, uh, is a, uh, Samaritan, um, and the Samaritans are sort of a, um, a mixed uh, race of people. Uh, they were the um, 11 tribes that um, split off in the northern uh, kingdom of Israel um, that were conquered fairly early on, and same thing that they did with the, with Ju- Judah. Um, they took them away to slavery. Um, they took most of them away uh, to slavery, and then they sent their own people back in, and so there was a lot of intermarriage. Um, there was a lot of... Um, sort of uh, uh, watering down of uh, the, the, uh, 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 the religious experience that God wanted Israel to have, um, they actually set up their own place for sacrifice um, instead of Jerusalem in the, in the temple where God um, had ordained that they have sacrifice. So it, it was very, very checkered past, um, very mixed multitude um, kind of people. So, um, Sanballat is uh, the leader of uh, the Samaritans, or one of the big leaders of the Samaritans. And then Tobiah is um, somebody that's from there, um, from from that area, um, that was actually um, related to Sanballat by um, marriage. Um, There's also a guy that's mentioned that's an Arab. So, when when we look at the enemies, um, they surround them, north, south, east, and west. Um, And... um, When we first see them in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, uh, and this is when Nehemiah first appears on the scene. Nehemiah has already gotten the favor of the king. He's gotten provision from the king. He's got a military attachment uh, from the king. And when he comes into the land, one of the first people um, that he gets a reaction out of is Sanballat uh, and Tobiah. And it says that they were displeased, um, greatly displeased that someone had come to seek the welfare of Israel. And... um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We're going to talk about some of the tactics of the enemy. Um, if I have time, I'm going to get to the uh, weapons of our warfare and what we use. As I said before, we're not studying the book of Nehemiah just because it's a historical book or to acquaint ourselves with um, aspects of the Bible. But we believe that the, the Bible is a, um, is a, is a story And and it's connected all the way from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. It's a consistent, continuous story that every book of the Bible, every chapter in the Bible says something about God, and it says something about what God desires in his people and what God is going to do about the kingdom of God. Um, And so we study Nehemiah because it is pertinent to us today. And specifically, the tactics of the enemy that we see used in the book of Nehemiah is like he's not he's not very original. Um he knows what works with people and he uses it over and over again. Um and he he's very effective in what he does if people are not vigilant and if they're not wise, if they're not uh, on to his um on to his tactics and and his uh, purposes. So I'm going to read there's a lot to read today. Um, couple of uh, scriptures. So uh, today I'm going to look at chapter four, the first part of chapter four that we kind of skipped over last week. We talked about it a little bit, but we skipped over it. And then I'm also going to talk about um, chapter six. Um, chapter five is another uh, instance, but it has more to do um, with the people that came back into the land and sort of the um, mixed motives, um, the leadership that was self-serving. Uh, and what Nehemiah did to um, to deal with that. We may talk about that next week. Uh, and I'm going to try to quit, um, like, at, at the top of the hour, uh, if possible. That clock's not right, so, okay. I guess we need a battery or something in that. Um, so uh, somebody set an alarm for... Um, For whatever time you want it to be over, not before 12. All right, so I'm going to read, and then we'll come back and talk about it a little bit. This is Nehemiah chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. It says, Now when um, Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. Make a note of that. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said, In the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria... What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And I just want to tell you right now that that is not true, and Nehemiah and the people are going to demonstrate that in this glorious um, procession that they're going to have on top of the walls dressed in white. It's going to be awesome. But this, this, these words that they're saying right now, they're going to live to eat those words. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Let me see, what do I got here? Turn back their taunt on their own heads. And give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. I'm going to continue reading, but I just want to call your attention to this. This is the strength of Nehemiah is that when he is confronted with challenges and when he, is, when, he is, uh, when he saw the need that Jerusalem was in, his first reaction, his reflex, is to pray. He didn't address Tobiah and Sanballat at this time. He saw the threat. He understood what was coming against him, and his reflex was to pray. The first thing that he did, and listen, probably the most effective thing that he did was to begin with prayer and to realize that this is not a conflict between him and these guys, but this is a conflict between those guys and God. And he called God to action. And this is a scorcher of a prayer too. Uh, he's not—he's not being nice. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And there's that reference again. There's that um, uh, account of their reaction to it. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to build the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and will kill them to stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space between the wall, in open places, I stationed the people with their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome." And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. There's one basic fact of life, and that's you will uh, face adversity. No matter what your choice in life is, no matter what you're going to do, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be forces that oppose you. There's going to be things that are going to make things difficult for you. Um, I've always wished, you know, for a time of peace when everything was simple and straightforward. And a lot of times when you look back into the past, you kind of think those were simpler times. But the fact is, is that it's never simple, it's never easy, and you will always have opposition. The, the thing is, is that you want to set your heart to do things that matter, because you're going to be opposed anyway. So you might as well be fighting for something that's worth fighting for, and living for something that's worth living for. If, if the world was just, then all you'd have to do is say, I'm doing the will of God, and everything would be, you know, flowers, and, you know, puppies, and kitty cats and stuff everything would be nice and easy and warm and and all of that but the fact is we live in a fallen world and this fallen world fights back and there's an enemy that's behind all of it and he, this characterization that we see here is his his life this is the way he is he's angry he's upset he doesn't like you he doesn't like you a bit you may not see yourself as a threat, but he definitely does, and he's angry, and he's moved to, to, uh, to, um, to warfare and to try to harm you and hurt you and distract you. The reason why I skipped all of this part before is because the other stuff that we've already talked about is more important than this. Knowing that we're, God is on our side, knowing that God has provided for us, knowing that God has given us the right and the ability to walk in the kingdom of God, that's way more important than knowing that there's an enemy. But we can't go through life with rose-colored glasses on, not realizing that we have a, one that goes about as a roaring lion. He's not a lion. We are serving the lion. But he goes about pretending to be that, to, to roar and to scare and to intimidate us. And that's important to know. It's not the most important thing, but it's really important that we don't minimize that or forget that. The big question of the universe is who is in charge? That's the big question of the universe, and each one of us has to answer that question. So I ask you, who is in charge? We can, you can talk in church. Who is huh? the king? king. We know this, right? We don't always live that way, but we know it. The struggles in our life a lot of times are, are a struggle based on the fact that we're not putting him in the highest place. We're not putting him in his rightful place of authority. But listen, there will be a day, the Bible tells us, that's coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's going to happen. The people who are in the most rebellion today, their knee will bow. And why? Because somebody's going to make them? No, because they're going to see him as he is. And they're going to just say, I was wrong. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> it's going to be plainly obvious. The resistance at that point will be futile. But at this point, because God wants to redeem people from every tribe and nation and tongue, God is working to do something that he has in mind to do, and he could judge the devil right now, but he would also have to judge all of those that he's reaching out to. At the same time, he couldn't do one and not do the other. When judgment comes, it will be final, and it will be complete, and it will be just, and it will be right. But in the meantime, in this time, there's work for us to do. That is God's work, and that is to bring people to faith, bring people to a living relationship with Jesus Christ, bring people to putting themselves under the rightful authority and being able to answer that question rightly, sanely. Who is in charge? God is in charge. You probably know this, but... um, it's belligerent, man. It's moving. It's not the the, the thing that we are involved in here um, is not passive. It's aggressive. It's it's not um, uh, you know, it's not sitting back. It's stepping up. It's moving forward. Jesus said that um, uh, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. The gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. Listen, gates don't move. Gates aren't attacking. We are the ones that are attacking, and we have a promise from God that when we move forward, we are irresistible. And he has given us the victory. He has given us the the chance, the opportunity. He's given us the provision, and he's given us the authority to do that. It's not a passive endeavor. It's an active, belligerent, rebellious endeavor. Michael the archangel's name, do you know what his name means, Michael? Michael? Say it. Who is like God? That is provocative. That's provocation. That question right there is what sets the enemy's teeth on edge. Who is like God? The devil? Are you going to say that you're like God? Are you omnipotent? Are you omnipresent? Do you have all power? Do you have all knowledge? Can you be everywhere at once? Are you like God? You're not. He pretends, but he's not. Are people like God? That's how the devil tempted Eve. He said, knowing that if you, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God knows that he wants to keep that from you. The temptation was to be like God. But you don't become like God by rebelling against God. You become like God by submitting to God. Who is like God? It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And it should be on our lips and on our hearts as well. It should be something that we, we, that's the filter that we look through in in the world that we see. The things that present themselves and vaunt themselves as being authority or being, having power or having uh, the ability to harm us. We should look at all of those things as saying, who is like God? If God is for us, who can be against us? The word Satan means uh, adversary. I just watched, um, I think it's one of um, the Bible Project's newer um, uh, videos. I don't know if any of you guys have seen it. Bible Project is the guys that do, um, the, they do the whole Bible. They do every book of the Bible. They do it kind of in cartoons, but they also do it in animation and stuff like that. And uh, they recently did one on Satan and, uh, and demons, and um, which apparently got them a lot of um, pushback from some people. I don't even know who, but they um, they s- did a whole session, an, a question and answer session. It looks like it's a podcast um, because they're sitting at microphones and they're just answering questions that people ask about um, uh, about what they had said because it seemed to be very controversial. And is everything that I've seen these guys do, it's really scriptural, it's really um, scholarly, um, and it's very compelling. But if one, of, one of the things that he points out, and he's trying to start a quiet rebellion with this, is not calling Satan Satan, but calling Satan the Satan. Because Satan actually means the accuser, or the adversary is what it means. And so it's not, it, it's not his name. His name is not Satan. That's his position. That's what he does. Um, he is, um, he is the, um, um, the opposition that we will face. And he manifests himself in so, so many different ways. We've seen it in the Bible. In almost every book of the Bible, there's some manifestation of evil. There's some manifestation of rebellion against the authority of God. And sometimes it manifests itself in people. Sometimes it manifests itself in, uh, in darkness uh, and, and other stuff like that. But he's behind all of that. So when we're talking about this is the work that God has given Israel to do, um, I'm not going to review the whole thing, but this, we, Israel recognized that this was God's faithfulness that this wall was broken down. This was God's faithfulness that they had been sold off into slavery. This is not the enemy. This is not that Satan uh, triumphed over God. This is that God fulfilled his promise to Israel that when you turn your back on me, I will judge you, but I will bring you back. And this is a two-sided promise. I will judge you, and I will sell you off into slavery, and you will be broken And then I will bring you back and I will restore you to the land. And that's what God is doing here. This is a work of God. It's not a work of men. And as a work of God, it will be opposed by the enemy. But as a work of God, it will succeed. It will succeed. And man has a vital role to play in that. Satan just means adversary. So who are the adversaries in our scriptures here in the the book of Nehemiah? Samballot, Tobiah, um, this uh, Horonite, um, uh, another, there was like three or four of them named. And like I said, they represent people that surrounded Israel, just like they're surrounded today, by the way. The nation of Israel is surrounded by enemies. It's a miracle that they exist as it is today. And I think part of that is God's favor upon them. I'm not saying that they are God's chosen people necessarily, that we are God's chosen people. We are the habitation of God. We are the temple that God desired to have on earth. But I still believe that Israel has a special place in God's um, economy and God's plans um, for the future. There's something about that that it is. But They were called as God's people, but they weren't living as God's people. That's where Israel was at that time. Because they needed something more. They needed a Savior. They needed a Messiah. They needed a deliverer. They needed a Redeemer. And so God promised that from the very beginning, okay? He didn't say, You guys are going to be this. He said, I'm going to send this to you, not just to you, but to the whole world through you. So you can see the tactics of the enemy and what they've done here. They oppose the work that um, Nehemiah is doing. They recognized the danger from the minute he stepped um, foot in the nation before he ever began any work whatsoever. The enemy recognized the danger that was there. When Becky and I came to the Lord, we had been raised in a faith tradition that kind of believes that they're the only ones, even though they soften that message sometimes. But um, we got saved and we stayed in that, that faith tradition. Because I didn't believe I'd given it a good enough shot. I thought I just hadn't prayed enough. I hadn't, you know, gone to church when I was supposed to go to church. I hadn't fulfilled my obligations. That Maybe there would be life in it if I would do those things. And so we stayed in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, I'm telling you which one it is. Um, we stayed there um, for a year. And we did, man. I, I, like I prayed, uh, I, I prayed, You know, the rosary, I went to church when I was supposed to go to church. Um, I was, you know, as devout as I possibly could be. And what I found was it was just not a system that fit me, you know? I mean, it's like when you get up in the morning in the dark and you get dressed and you put your shirt on, you can tell if it's on backwards without even looking at it, right? Because it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit right. And that's how this felt to me because we had been part of this congregation too, And we had been fed here like every Sunday that we came. Man, the Word was so rich and we were growing in our relationship with the Lord. And we had a Friday night meeting. And in that Friday night meeting, we got filled with the Holy Spirit. And we learned how to worship. And we learned how to love the Word of God. And it was so open and alive to us. And after a year, our first son was born. And he was born with a really serious illness. And we were already believers. There's no doubt about that. We already were believers and loved the Lord and were growing in our faith. But when that happened, I realized I needed to be somewhere where people could pray for me effectively, like we pray for one another. And many of you have been the beneficiary of that or have been a participant in that. And you've seen God do amazing, amazing things in people's life. And we had already been there. We knew, I knew that we needed to be where we could be prayed for effectively. I knew that our course in life was going to be difficult and that we needed people around us that were people of faith that could support us and strengthen us and walk before us as an example. I knew that it was time to leave. What we knew... And, and, and make a, you know, a permanent statement here. And during that year that we, were gone, that we had stayed in that denomination, we hadn't been baptized. And when we decided to come to TCF, Easter Sunday of 1980, I think it was. It was before, no, it was after Joshua was born. So, 81, Easter Sunday of, of 1981, we got baptized here. And like I said, we had walked with the Lord for a a year. We had been experiencing, you know, the grace of God. And and like I've I've said many times before, I couldn't do this thing just because it was mentally a mental thing. It had to have some supernatural element to it. And we were experiencing the supernatural here. I'm not just talking about healings and stuff like that. I'm talking about the transformation of our hearts and God breaking the chains of bondage that had, had plagued us for so long and the joy of the Lord the joy, the, the love that we received, but also that we were able to give. We were experiencing all of that in that year. It was all real. But I knew that I needed to be baptized. And I was amazed at how much resistance I got in the Spirit to baptism. And when I say resistance in the Spirit, I'm saying it, it's, it sounded a lot like this. This is the enemy's tactics. Why do you need to do that? Who do you think you are? that doesn't really matter. All of these things, not just that, but other things in life began to fall apart that made me say, what am I standing on? Am I standing on something that's going to fall apart or be shaken? Or am I standing on something that's solid? And you know what it did for me getting that opposition? It convinced me that what I was doing was right, not wrong. It convinced me that there was some spiritual truth here, there was some spiritual power here, there was some spiritual um, authority in my obedience to Jesus saying, when you believe, be baptized. When I, when I walked in that obedience, then the whole thing opened up, and then I began to see the power of it, that my foundation didn't have a crevice in it, didn't have a crack in it, it wasn't, wasn't flawed in any way, but I was standing on a firm foundation. It was simply because Jesus clearly said, I don't know why said this but he clearly said when you believe be baptized that's what he said why I don't know I don't know all the implications of baptism I don't know all the symbolism of baptism all I know is that he told me to do it and so I did it and all I know is that if if it meant nothing then the enemy would not have gotten so upset about it and would not have resisted me He would have just that I would have never heard from him. And there's a principle in this. Satan is anti-creation and he's anti-order. He can't create anything himself, but he can pervert things that are created. He can't, he doesn't have a plan. He doesn't have a plan. If he had a plan, he would never have crucified Jesus Christ. His plan is to make you as miserable as possible. His pa- plan is to sow chaos and disorder, to come against order. Because that's what God did when he made creation. He didn't create it out of nothing. He created it out of disorder and out of chaos. There was, if you read Genesis chapter 1, there is, there is stuff there. There's stuff that's going on. It's just disordered. It's just chaos. And God took these things and he created something and he made something. What's the difference between you? and a pile of dirt. Because if you're broken down to your basic elements, you're just going to be a little pile of elements, right? And water, right? What's the difference? The creative power of God. And that's what God does, and Satan can't do that. But he can destroy. He can steal. If he's allowed to have his way, if he had his way with us as it is right now, every one of us would be drawing our last breath, and miserably and hopelessly. That's what we would be doing. But he doesn't have that. He doesn't have unlimited power. And he doesn't have unlimited authority. He's anti-creation. Satan wants to return creation to disorder. And he wants to return your life to chaos. And he wants to break down the creation that God has established. He wants to undo the work of creation. In the world and in our lives. He is the author of decay. God is the author of health and strength and life. Ne- Nehemiah's attempt or, or mission to rebuild the wall was a, was a mission to restore order, godly order. And the broken wall is, um, just represents Chaos. When there's a broken wall, your enemies can has free access to your heart, to your home, to your family, to your businesses, uh, to everything. And we've seen, we saw how the enemies of God always did that. They put them under subjection. They stole their wheat. They they um, um, they uh, commanded that they give tribute to Israel. They came in to steal. And that wall being broken down means that they have free access. They're like, we say, no, you can't come in here. And they're like, what's stopping me? What's stopping me? And that wall, that wall represents order. It represents authority. It represents their identity of who they are, that they have a place. And it's not just a city, but it's a temple. And it's not just a, like a wall with nothing on the inside. It's a people. And Nehemiah is building a wall, but God is building a people. And that's what God is after. He's after something more. Look, we're only like, what are we, um, four, six chapters in, not even halfway through the book, and the wall is already built. But there's a lot more to do here. There's a lot more to do because these people have been slaves, they've been under subjection, they've been prisoners, they have not had a country, they have not really been a nation. And God is restoring not just them to that city, but he's restoring their identity as the people of God. And that's the most powerful thing. Those guys in right relationship with God were unconquerable. He promised them that. And when Tobiah and, um, and Sanballat saw that God was in it, that's what made them mad. That's what scared them to death. That's what made them move to to fight as much as they could to resist this. I don't know if they believed what they were saying about this wall can never stand, and if a fox jumped on it, it would fall apart. And you people can, you might start this thing, but you'll never be able to complete it. I don't know if they believe that or not. They may have. Let them. Let them believe that. Let them underestimate let them think that this is just people doing stuff. Let them do that, if that's what they think. Because God is up to the task of demonstrating himself to be the authority, the final authority. And he doesn't just do it by letting it drop from heaven. He does it through his people. He does it through you, and he does it through me. You think God could have... If God could make a man out of dirt, he could have made a wall out of just the rocks that were laying around, but he's, that's not what he's after. This, is that my alarm? Is it? Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. But I already I determined ahead of time I'm not going to get all of this in today. I tell you what I'll do. I'll skip to something that there's a list here that. Oh, this is um, in the book of Revelation, and this shows um, what the devil does. Man, it's so, so descriptive, so powerful. It said, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And look, there was no place, and there was no, no longer any place for them in heaven. When the kingdom of God advances, it, it kicks out some other things. The kingdom of God cannot be established without disestablishing something else. You gotta when you when you step into the kingdom of God, you step into somebody else's territory. And but look, they're squatters. They don't belong there anyway. They have no authority whatsoever. Nehemiah is moving under the authority of God and he's moving under the authority of the king and, and uh, Sambalad and Tobiah are accusing them of wanting to be gods themselves, wanting to be king themselves. But they don't rise to the bait. They don't, they don't take that uh, as uh, um, that that's really what they are. Look, everybody in Israel could say that about them, but they know who they are. They know what they're, they're about. These are lies and accusations that are coming against them and sometimes that kind of stuff can wear you down. When people tell you, this is what you are, or this is what your motives are, or this is where you're coming from, and you know it's not true, the worst thing you can possibly do is acknowledge that and say, yes, I can see how you say that. That might be true. Or live your life in a way that says, no, it's not true. I am not God. I don't think that I'm God. I'm not trying to be God. But I am godly, and I am godlike because he's making me godlike. But that's not, in, that's not in competition with him. That's in cooperation with him. He was defeated. There was no longer any place found for them in heaven. And then look at the next thing. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent that is called the devil and Satan. So there's no question about who he's talking about here, right? He's telling us all of the different ways that we have referred to him the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. So there's a process that's going on here. Satan has been kicked out of heaven. He, he does not have access um, to heaven. He doesn't have access to that throne of grace and, that, and, and, the, and the authority of God or anything like that. He was kicked out. He didn't belong. He was, he was ejected. He's a refugee from God. He's a, he's a um, um, uh, what do you call it? Somebody that's running from the law. Fugitive. He's a fugitive from justice. And here's where he lands. But this is not a permanent place either, and he knows that. This is not a permanent. He's come to earth, and, and he's been kicked out of heaven. How did he get kicked out of heaven? Because Michael and the angels made war against him. And what's going to happen to him on the earth? He's not going to find peace down here. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Can I I just, one thing on that, okay, and then we'll quit. It says, how do we overcome the enemy? There's two dangers that you can make when talking about the devil. You can give him too much authority or you can uh, uh, underestimate his authority. You can you can be afraid of his bluster and his threats or you can say you know i'm not afraid of the devil the devil doesn't that's that's not being sober minded because he can do damage and there is real loss and some of you guys have seen that there is real loss there is a real danger of underestimating the power of the enemy or the threat that the enemy has but ultimately he is defeated and the way that we conquer him is by the blood of the lamb. What does the blood of the lamb mean? What does that mean to you? Say so, it. blood of the lamb is, is the, uh, the way that we are forgiven. That blood in my life means I'm in right standing with God. And when the devil comes and says, who do you think you are? You're just like, ask him. <laughs> I'm not going to try to convince you of anything. Ask him. You know, he has said this is what I am. I'm a new creation because of the blood of the Lamb, and I am on right relationship with God because of the blood of the Lamb. What else does it mean, the blood of the Lamb? Huh? There's a new covenant, right? That was, that was the, the covenant that God made was through the blood of Jesus Christ. That means we are not just in a right relationship. We are not just um, allies of God, but we are family. We're not just like, oh, you know, me and God, we're doing this thing together, and God's going to help me do this. No, it's like we're family. He's my heavenly father, and I'm his child. And that's a different relationship than an ally relationship. It's blood. It's, um, it's, re- it's a relationship. It's the basic relationship of my relationship with you. Let me tell you another thing that the blood of the lamb means. The Bible says that because Jesus Christ was faithful unto death, God highly exalted him. That blood meant that he had fulfilled what God had called him to, and that's when God gave him the name above all names. The blood of Jesus means that he has the name above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the, uh, Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God. So we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb, and the second one is by the by the word of our testimony. That means this is not just theoretical stuff. This is not just a spiritual reality, but it's finding its reality in me. By the the word of my testimony, and I like the way the ESV um, translates this because I think it's it's the King James um, that uh, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb the word of their testimony and that they loved not their lives unto death. And the ESV translates it for they loved not their lives unto death. Their identity was on this side of the grave and on the other side of the grave. And that they knew that there might be situations, and there have been throughout history, where serving God meant death. But death was not defeat. How do you defeat somebody like that? What do you scare them with? What, what, what can you intimidate them with? Because they have sold out. They have said, I am totally in, and if I live, I live to Christ and if I die, then die is, dying is gain. That's the word of their test. That's the reason why they overcame the devil, because he can't intimidate, and he can't dissuade you, and he can't distract you, because you know who you are in Jesus Christ. How did it get so late? I don't... I, I, I'm going to give you one list here. This is um, later. This is in chapter 6 um, when um, Sambalad and Tobiah. Let me do this one today, and then we'll do the rest of it next week. The ways that the adversary uh, tries to tempt us. First is to deceive us. God's, God's truth is the truth. And Jesus said, I am the truth. Not I am true or I am you know, but he says, the, the, I am the truth, the truth. The one thing that I know that is true in the universe is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the one thing that I know that is true. And anything else that presents itself as truth that opposes that is not true by its nature. And we know this. We know that the most effective deception is 99% truth and 1% deception. That's the part that is the hardest for people to spot because they're like, well, this is right, that, and this is right, and this is right, and this is right, and this, but this doesn't sound like it, but it all seems like it's so right. And that's what the devil does to deceive us. He tells, he tells Nehemiah, you can't do this. You know, the best thing that Nehemiah can say is, I know I can't do this, but I know God can. That's not the whole thing. The whole thing is not, can Nehemiah do it? The whole thing is, is God in this? And can God use an earthen vessel like Nehemiah to do it? To not, to, to, he wants to tempt us to become deceived. He wants to get our ear. And sometimes he gets our ear just by speaking directly to us. Often he gets our ear by get, influencing us through other people. Sometimes well-meaning people. Sometimes our, our, our intention to be right about something can cause us to be deceived about it instead of letting God have the final authority and the final word. And that's why it's so important to know the word of God. That's why, that's why it's so important not just to be acquainted with it, but to be daily in it. It's a, it's a lifelong study. You're a student for the rest of your life. Because you're going to find stuff in there every single day. If you're faithful to be in it, you're going to find some instruction. You're going to find some correction in there. You're going to find some encouragement in there. You're going to find that every single day. That's why it's so important to not be deceived by being in the word. The second one is he wants to discourage us. And he uses all different ways to discourage us. You can look at a situation this way and be discouraged, or you can look at a situation this way and say, man, God's going to do something awesome there. It's your choice. It's your choice. And you're not trusting yourself, you're not trusting the circumstances, but you're trusting God in it. To become discouraged. Um, I think in this one it says that their hands were heavy, their hands were hanging down because the work was so intimidating for them to do. Listen, all you got to do is lift your hands. You don't have to do the whole thing at one time. You just do the next right thing. You do the right thing in the situation. How will it work out? Chances are most of the time we face like death, like certain death. If I do it God's way, I'm going to lose my job. If I do it God's way, I'm going to lose my relationship. If I do it God's way, I'm going to lose my, um, my whatever. I'm going to lose If I do it God's way, and time and time and time and time and time again, he proves that that is not true. And sometimes the only thing that you're standing on is the word of God. I know what God says in his word. I'm standing on that. And that's what keeps us, even when we're discouraged, keeps us at the work. And then the last one is to become prideful. One of the ways that they tempted him um, was a guy that was a priest, um, which you should be able to trust the priest, and the priest contacted Nehemiah, and he said, they're going to kill you. They're, they're looking to kill you. And he says, I want to talk to you. Meet me in the temple. Nehemiah is not a Levitical priest. He has no business in the temple. He doesn't get to go into the temple. He brings his offering. He brings his sacrifice to the temple, but he doesn't get to go in there. And, and if he's thinking, well, I'm the governor here. That's what he is now. I'm the governor here. I, all authority is, under, uh, is, is on me, and this guy wants to talk to me. I can go you know, I, can, I can. go in there, and, and, and he says, no, I will not go in there. He was not lifted up in pride. They were telling him that he wanted to be king, and he knew that was not true, and he didn't make the mistake of thinking he was fine to do anything he wanted to do because of his authority, because of the responsibility that was given to him. A lot of times, leaders feel themselves privileged because they have worked so hard, because they have the people's best interest at heart. And they assume that it's okay and it's not okay. That's pride, is what that is. And he rejected that. These are the ways that the enemy tries to tempt us. Next week, we'll talk about the weapons of our warfare. Um, and we'll talk about um, some more things about um, the way that the enemy works and what his, what his plan is um, for us for today, okay? So just put a bookmark in it, and I appreciate your patience and prevailing on me to go long today. <clears throat> Let's stand together. Hallelujah. Um, as we close today, if you need prayer, will you just raise your hand right where you are? God knows God knows what it is. And if you're standing near some of these people that are raising their hand, will you just kind of reach over and put your hand on them and touch them and pray for them for just a second? Can you do that? Might have to move around. Hold your hand up if you need prayer. There you go. Every one of you guys is qualified to pray, so don't think that, you know, a professional has to. Just pray for a second, and then I'll close us in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Thank you, Lord.
1: Hallelujah. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. promise still stands great is your faithfulness faithfulness I'm still in your hands this is my confidence you never fail me thank you Lord Father
0: I thank you for um, the, uh, the things that the adversary does that remind us of what our hope is in, remind us of what our confidence is in, Lord, that the whole earth can shake, Lord, but we stand on a solid rock. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that you would make us to be sober-minded, Lord, and vigilant, to not be subject to his schemes, Lord. I pray even now, Lord Jesus, that you would open our eyes to any deception that we might be under, Lord, and that we would bring everything back under the authority of God, under the authority of The word the 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 word of, of god and the and the the word himself the way the truth and the life i thank you for it and we pray lord jesus for all of these today that have indicated that they need prayer lord first and foremost lord jesus that they would know their sins are forgiven first and foremost lord that there would be a healing of their soul lord their spirit a right relationship with you lord regardless of how everything else works out lord jesus that they would stand solidly in a right relationship with you and continue in that, Lord. But also, Lord, that as we lay our hands upon them, they they would know, Lord, that they are not alone. They are not alone, Lord. Just like I sought a body, Lord, a, a an expression of uh, uh, of the body of Christ, Lord, that would be an example to me, that would be people of faith that would speak into my life, um, that would be a that would be. Um, A a source of of encouragement that would be a mission for myself, Lord, a place to serve. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that each one of these who have raised their hand, Lord, would have that need met as well as, Lord, knowing that they're connected, that they belong, Lord. That they're loved. They're part of a family, God. I just thank you for that, Lord. Thank you, Lord hallelujah thank you lord hallelujah i pray lord jesus for tcf i pray lord that the year ahead and the and the decade ahead lord the 20s would be a time of incredible ministry and growth and mission worldwide god some, Lord Jesus, that are sitting here today, Lord, would be ministering next year or in 10 years from now, Lord, in the uttermost parts of the earth. That all of us, Lord Jesus, would be helping to transform this community, Lord, of Tyler and in, 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 uh, surrounding areas, Lord, in ways that only you can do, Lord. I pray, Lord, that in the year to come and in the 10 years to come, Lord, you would make us more outwardly focused, Lord Jesus, even than we are today. Of reaching out, of inviting people in, of redeeming the time, Lord, of working in the harvest, Lord, that you have put us in the midst of. And we look forward to it, Lord, and we just pray that you would glorify your name in it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.
1: Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness faithful